0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 450. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out the other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This week's interview is with Evelyn Starr. Evelyn's a marketing consultant. Brand Strategist, Consumer Insights Professional, and author of Teenage Waste Brand, How Your Brand Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling. In this conversation with Evelyn, we discuss the key symptoms of brand adolescence, the importance of and distinction between brand values and brand attributes. We look at how comedians and universities try to brand and separate themselves out, a most stimulating discussion for anyone interested in brands and marketing you'll find all the show notes on Minterdial.com. please consider to drop in your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe please to catch all the future episodes now for the show with evelyn evelyn star how lovely to have you on the show you and i connected through an uprising an uprising with our mutual friend and co-conspirator on branding and marketing, Mark Schaefer. In your own words, Evelyn, how would you like to describe yourself?
1: I am an author, marketing consultant, brand strategist, and speaker. I'm also a mother of two fabulous 20-somethings and a long time married, 27 plus years to a, an absolutely wonderful husband. And um, let's see, I like to hike, do yoga, meditate, and eat fabulous food. Oh, and mm. I'm a teaaholic, I should say that. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, so on many levels, um, it strings together some funny things. Of course, 27 and 20 year olds, um, that's also me in terms of length of marriage and uh, two kids in the 20s. Uh, my wife happens to be a, a tremendous teetotaler and she's a fabulous woman. So we have lots of good things uh, going on at, is, in our personal lives. Both of us have also fallen into the, the, uh, the pool or uh, the pot of marketing and branding. Tell us your journey into branding and marketing.
1: Well, <laughs> my journey became uh, began sort of accidentally. Um, after I graduated college and moved to Boston, I had this um, enamored sense of any job that had the word analyst in it. Okay, so you know anyone who thought that maybe I was very strategic about my career, it was actually a lot more accidental. And so back in the days when I moved to Boston in uh, the fall of 1987, we were still applying to jobs based on classified ads in the back of a of a newspaper. You smile, so I think you remember what I'm talking about. Um, oh yes. And I I got a job as a market research analyst. And um, so that was my entrance into this. I had never taken a market research course. I was an economics and French major in college, Um, but the economics part helped me. And then the other thing that helped me just as an interesting tidbit is um, the the job actually said, PhD preferred, and I was a 22 year old. With a bachelor's degree, but you know, through the interview process, they were impressed, and I said, "Well, you know." They said, "But we're not convinced you could write." So they let me do a writing sample, Um, and I I beat out the PhDs because I could write more concisely. And this was a publication for Fortune five hundred CEOs who did not want to read a treatise; they wanted to know, in bullet point fashion, what was going on in the world. So that was the very early way that I got in and ended up through a succession of jobs and an MBA, working my way through various market research departments and then to a new product manager job before I, I bailed from corporate America.
0: <laughs> and thus thus another journey. So your, your book is A Teenage Waste Brand, a lovely um, hint to a, a fabulous song, How Your Brand Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling. Let's start with to whom is aimed this book? Who are the people you were thinking of when you wrote your book?
1: Uh, So there were the clients that I was working with. I went out on my own uh, 22 years ago. And uh, while I've done some work for blue chip companies like Hasbro and Gillette, my sweet spot really developed early on to work with the business owners of small and medium sized companies those business owners, when they hired me, would sort of look at me sheepishly and say, you know, I haven't really done any marketing. Um, It's the thing I like to do least. It keeps falling to the bottom of my to-do list. And when I probe further, it wasn't that they hated marketing. It's that they found it mysterious. They didn't understand it. And so um, they needed a way for it to be more accessible, which meant toss the jargon and find ways to explain how it works and what it could do for them and how to make good marketing decisions. And um, so my book is written to those small and medium-sized business owners who have launched brands that initially had a really good start and then plateaued several years in. Um, And it's a sort of more intuitive way to figure out why your brand has plateaued and what you need to do to get it moving again.
0: So you, you, um, you talked about the mystery of branding, and it re- reminded me of a comment that Peter Thiel made at a, at a lecture he did at Stanford, and I can quote it saying, there's this thing of branding, which is this idea that gets lodged in people's brains. I never quite understand how branding works, so I never invest in companies which are just about branding. But there is, I think, a real phenomenon there that creates real value. And, and it's funny this notion of of mystery because certainly when i uh, i started a little bit serendipitously in marketing with a literature degree and i was in Wall street like you an analyst but um it was turned out it was about communications funnily and then i i, I ended up going to business school uh, in, in France because i felt like i just needed to learn what actually they mean by marketing and branding spend some time on it ultimately of course the only way to learn about it is doing it. It's very hard to just read about it. But it is a mystery for so many people, including Peter Thiel. So do you feel like that's a large part of what you're doing is helping them demystify.
1: Oh absolutely absolutely. And I sort of came to my own organic understanding of a brand was years and years ago, you know, the my corporate career included a number of New England companies that were very well known in this area. So Very Fine Products, which was a juice company, and uh, Dunkin' Donuts, which a lot of people know, and um, uh, another company called The First Years, which had uh, made infant and toddler products. And so what I found was that when I would talk to people, as soon as I mentioned where I worked, they had a comment about the brand. And it occurred to me pretty quickly that what they thought of the brand was the sum total of every experience they'd ever had with it, if their memories were long. And so I came to see a brand, not as the logo or the tagline or anything like that, brand is in the consumer's mind. And it's this folder they open up when they hear the name and start filing away every interaction or touch point they have with it. And so that is the basis on which I talk to my clients. You know this isn't this isn't a set it and forget it kind of logo situation every time someone interacts with your brand and by the way it's not just your customers it's your employees it's your distributors vendors anybody um, this is contributing to your brand image and what your brand is and you have to be cognizant of that
0: i i so agree with that as you know in my book i talk about the inside out model and having all the ecosystem In its own way, of course, subscribing to your brand. In my experience, Evelyn, I worked with, uh, I was at L'Oreal, and I worked with a lot of agencies. And I can't help but think that the agencies have contributed to the mystery and the misidentification of what branding is, especially as it's evolved from one way, push it out to this, multifarious series of weird, wacky experiences that we're all getting. To what extent do you agree with that?
1: Well, you know, I I could think it would be a two-way street because if you start with business owners and business leaders who don't really understand marketing and they have this problem they need to solve and an agency comes and says, we can take this piece and solve it for you. <laughs> There's, it's very attractive. So it's like a self-fulfilling, you know, I, I don't know, sort of system there.
0: Well, and, it sounds like the blind leading the blind. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, it does, you know, and I I sat in a meeting, you know, I, with all due respect to the, a number of the companies I worked for were family owned. And uh, I remember sitting in a meeting where the president a very fine, was there with the agency we were we were there we were present but we weren't all that vocal because um, you know attitudes in the workplace and that kind of thing about where our stature was but i remember the president turning to the head of the agency and saying you know what you did for the energizer bunny i need you to find me a character so it will take off like that complete misunderstanding that those things cannot be orchestrated that that viral nature um, can't be predicted. And the agency, you know, their jaws dropped. And and of course, they don't want to say no. Of course. (laughs) Okay, let's, let's work on this, you know, and they came up with some sort of um, drawn cartoon character, which didn't go anywhere. I mean, it just, the, the misunderstanding in the room was rampant.
0: One of the, well, I mean, one of the big problems is you can't really copycat I mean, it's sort of like living someone else's life. Right. Really lean into who you are and forget the bunny. Who are you? And, and the other thing that that sort of smacks up and which I, I, let's say, counsel against is thinking that agencies can do branding because as you point out, branding is a sum total of a lot of experiences by all of your stakeholders and agencies really only get paid for advertising, you know, essentially production of movies, short films, beautiful double page spreads and the like. And, and so their model doesn't really account for real brand creation.
1: Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. And I've seen, you know, but I think in the right mode, they can be good partners. So for example, when I was at Duncan, which is in the mid 1990s, You know, we knew, we were hearing in the research already that people treated themselves to Dunkin'. It's a place they came to refuel during the day, you know, to grab a coffee, to grab a treat. Um, But it took a really long time before, and and, and a couple of agency changes, before their agency sort of seized on that and created the tagline, America runs on Dunkin'. You know, this is one very small example. Um, But what I mean to say by that is that when agencies partner and Help the company, help the brand see what it's about. You know, more as a mirror rather than an owner of the brand, then they can be really helpful.
0: That's fair. Um, thank you for that, uh, Evelyn. So, in your book, you you talk about the eight symptoms of brand adolescence. So, I, 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 far from wanting to go through the laundry list of all of those eight, the one I what I wanted to ask you, I, I know what I think it is, but. Uh, which is the most prevalent among your eight, your clients and why? Uh,
1: by far, it's the identity crisis. It's the one I put first in the book. It's brands who haven't taken the time, and I know this is near and dear to your heart, to actually codify what their purpose is and then... Um, educate everyone involved with the brand about what the purpose is and what we're working towards so people can affiliate or not affiliate with it and contribute or detach. And so, as I describe it, the identity crisis, uh, you know, for people to relate, I I just want to talk about an identity crisis is, you know, Erik Erikson is a German-American, was a German-American psychologist who identified it as that moment in adolescence where a teenager is trying to assert their individuality, but also worried about fitting in with their friends. And the solution to that, according to Erikson, is for them to decide two things, who they want to be, and how they want to be perceived. And so an identity crisis, when I talk about it, is about a brand, not only determining what their purpose is, or discovering their purpose, but also what their personality is, so that they can be consistent, not only in communications, but in the way that they operate.
0: I I definitely raised my eyebrow, not at you, but at two distinct ideas, one in your book and another espoused by brene Brown, which is the opposite of fitting in is belonging. And the idea there is that you don't need you shouldn't want to fit in. you sh- should just belong. And I feel like this subject of identity crisis is rampant. Far from just adolescence, I I think of it right now as something that adults up and down the age scale, states, countries, and all variety of identities are struggling to find themselves. And I'm I'm wondering if, if what you're doing is tapping into this bigger zeitgeist.
1: Uh, well, it it applies. And uh, it's hard not to read the newspaper and see evidence of that well beyond the marketing world and well, well beyond companies. That is very true. Um, it wasn't how I went into it, but I can certainly see how it applies.
0: In, in that respect, then, it, there is this, well, certainly my belief that working at a brand can contribute to your own personal identity as an individual and buying a certain brand and having it in your bathroom, I worked in the hairdressing industry, um, is, is contributing to who I feel I am and what I deserve.
1: I think that that's true. That's true, because you want to associate with things that reflect well on you and that reflect who you are and what you believe, and you want to distance yourself from things that don't feel good to you.
0: It In this notion of belonging or, or fitting in, ultimately, I, I feel it also means I don't belong in other tribes, because you can't fit in everywhere. And as much as human beings sort of strive to belong to, with others, you know, want to fit in with other groups, the real challenge for brands is standing out. Because if I fit in and I look like plain vanilla, like you mentioned one person within the, your book who, who sort of went, went from having a strong personality and strong wording and, and uh, profanities, too plain vanilla, I feel like that's a, a real issue, the, the ability to stand out.
1: It's true. And it takes some personal fortitude to say, I am with this group and I'm not with other groups. And, and I would say, um, Minter, that kind of leads nicely to the second most uh, common of the adolescent symptoms identified, uh, which not necessarily in the order of the book, but that is suffering from FOMO, which is fear of missing out. Um, i think that's a very human emotion that has been absolutely blown out of proportion by social media because you get to visually see what else is going on without you as opposed to just you know when we were teenagers hearing about it in conversation um but brands have a very hard time sometimes saying i am about this and i'm not about that but if you you know try to appeal to everyone you're not appealing to anyone in particular, and you have no roadmap for getting where you wanna go.
0: I mean, it also speaks to the, the other symptom you talk about running with the wrong crowd. So let's talk a little bit more about a little wee topic I have in my head, which is, when does one form a brand? And let me, let me give a little context before that, which is, well, hey, uh, Evelyn, let's, let's start a company. Uh, what do you want to do it in? We'll do it in this sector. We'll do it this thing and that. And what are we going to call it? we got a name. Okay, let's call it the, the Evelyn Minter Show or whatever. And, uh, and then we start, we got three episodes or whatever we're doing. I, I'm wondering at what time does a brand form in your world?
1: That's such an excellent question, because as I defined a brand a few minutes ago, it's about the accumulation of experiences and touch points. And so at least in the beginning, in the beginning can go on for a little while, there's some iteration that needs to happen, some tweaking, some finding of the strengths. You know, when I started my business, I really didn't know that I was going to come up with this idea of brand adolescence. I didn't know that the people I was going to work best with were the small and medium sized companies. My background had been with larger companies. And it took some time testing out and having experiences and finding, you know, I really helped that one person company enormously. I didn't make as much money, but boy, that was so satisfying. I want more of that. Um, So I think, you know, the analogy with sort of like childhood and adolescence could broaden here in a sense that when you're a child you're trying all sorts of different things everything is new to you and you really you need to try a whole lot to find out what you like and then when you get a few years in not that it would take a few years for a podcast <laughs> and Evelyn mentor mentor of Evelyn course not podcast, <laughs> right but, but it would take a few episodes to see you know get some feedback from our audience find out what they're liking what's resonating with them what isn't resonating are we attracting the people that we thought we would attract are we we serving them? You know, how are we helping them? Those things take some time to learn. So brands aren't born right out of the box. Um, And I think that that, to your point earlier, is a challenge for the agency world, especially upon a launch the idea, the expectations sometimes from certain companies is we're going to launch a brand, agency is going to take care of it for us, and we expect it to fly right out of the box. And if you don't leave room for uh, rounds of feedback and some iteration and some tweaking, you could find yourself misguided and highly disappointed.
2: Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.
0: In the in this notion developing it, I and as I was thinking of the questions to ask you Evelyn, I I was thinking, well, you know, you've got this brain of a baby. It's born, it's it's super plastic learning growing at such speed. And then it's sort of understanding that it's detached from its parent. And then uh, there's this wonderful expression, or at least I think it's wonderful, interesting expression anyway, by Aristotle that said, give me a child until he or she is seven, and I will show you the man or the woman. Uh, and of course, I mean, fundamentally, I think there's differences between men and women and how girls and boys grow up and so on. And then you, then there's all sorts of differences about when you become native speaking in a language. And I think of that within the context of branding and the languages we use, the verbiage and the behaviors we have. And then when you get to adolescence, the thing that struck me was, well, actually it's it's half revolting against and belonging to. And I feel like it's, it's that sort of fieriness, which is within the adolescence. And at at what point I was thinking, trying to transcribe that into a business world that the brand can come of age. And the point I want to get to is that you also write that technology has accelerated maturation. So I wanted to now put that into a little salad bowl and have you react.
1: Well, if a brand is the accumulation of experiences you have with anything to do with that company or that entity. Uh, Technology enabling us to be in touch more, to have social media, um, email, all sorts of other things has amplified the number of ways we can be in touch and the frequency that we're going to be in touch. And so those impressions come faster than they used to before the internet existed. And so... Um, brands can form faster and technology brands, because things change so fast in the technology world are on like dog ears, you know, (laughs) in terms of how fast that they're um, evolving and changing. Um, To your point about the contrast between half revolting against and half fitting in, I think that's true. I think that once you've been in the world for a while, you're going to hit a juncture where there's going to be some decision point or uh, fork in the road, and you have to decide. And that's a moment where you say, well, now wait a minute, how do I make that decision? Why am I doing why am uh, what I'm doing, right? To your point, your book You Lead is all about leading from your why and being your whole person um, in the marketplace. And so if the brand in the Um, sort of frenzy of starting up and getting cash flow going and growing the company and making sure you're covering payroll and all those things hasn't taken time to step back and say, why are we doing this again? (laughs) And and who are we trying to serve and where do we want to go? The decision point forces that definition.
0: When you think of the adolescent, then you're revolting, and then you are trying to belong. And then the, the the interesting parallel I was thinking of is, as we get older, we tend to fall back into the ways of our parents. This is just a great tendency, great generalization. And I was thinking about that as well, the maturity of companies and how somehow they forget the revolting piece because it then all becomes all of a sudden, well, I've got to please everybody. Um, I've got to do more like the old way as opposed to being courageous to do it the new way and saying, this is who I am and this is who I am not. I somehow feel like there's a, a like a, an oldening of... Companies that forget their roots somehow. For some, I mean, oddly oddly enough, of course, in this adolescence, they're going back to the roots of the family, but they're not going back to the roots of who they are as an individual.
1: I mean, I I think it depends on the company. You know, one of the things you talk about in your book that uh, when there's a founding family or when there's a founder involved, they very much contribute to the why of the company. Uh, and often the reason a company started in the first place was that someone was seeking something that didn't exist. They had a problem they couldn't solve. And so they created a the solution. You know, They made what they wanted to see. Um, to your point about the oldening of companies, um, I agree that there is an oldening of companies that at some point they become more risk averse. They forget a little bit why they're in it. And my take on that sometimes is that but they've gotten past this adolescence and they're sufficiently past it, they've grown to a point where suddenly they have a lot more people they're responsible for. They have a lot larger base and they get fearful of losing that. And ironically, that fear is often their undoing or what causes the problems. When they stop taking risks, when they stop stop um. You know, innovating from the place of why are we doing this—that's what gets them off base and and makes the brand wobbly and and maybe uh, overly rigid.
0: Well, that was certainly something I, I did. I was, I'm listening to you. You know, my my brain is going a million miles an hour because I'm thinking now: who are the parents if the adolescent is the brand? And you know, there's—I was trying to figure out the decoupling of those two things. Yet when I was running Redken, it was extremely apparent to me that I was just a a commercial uh, dude coming in to run the business. And amongst my foibles and and worrying about my legitimacy, one of my answers to that was to spend a considerable amount of time uh, learning about and interacting with, because she was still alive, the founder, who was Paula Kent Meehan. And Paula would graciously give me an hour of her time, maybe once a month, and we would talk and sometimes just shooting the shit about her life and what she did and some of her experiences. And so I was able in this fortune that I had to be running the company when she was still alive. She's no longer alive, unfortunately. but. That, that's one of the challenges of these oldening companies is staying in touch with that founding precept and, and, and that fire, the why we existed in the first place. It just seems like we're, uh, unless as you talk about the lifestyle, unless you're a lifestyle business owner, it seems we're all destined to, to forget why we existed in the first place.
1: It's definitely hard as you try to keep things going and you're fighting fires and you're running operations to remember to reconnect with why you're doing it. you know. To your point, um, when I was at Dunkin' Donuts, the founder, Bill Rosenberg, was still alive and, um, and his son was atop the company and the company looked very different. Bill Rosenberg started... Dunkin' Donuts as open kettle as, a, as a, a cart somewhere giving, you know, providing coffee and donuts to people working on location in Quincy, Massachusetts. And um, his son actually uh, went to Harvard Business School and managed to grow the company really substantially to the point where the company was operating in a very different fashion. You know, in Bill's day, it was a uh, mom and pop somebody was getting up to make the donuts literally every every night at 2am so that there would be you know full shelves at 6am um and then while i was there in the effort to grow the brand very much they were doing centralized kitchens where they would deliver the food and so they Among my group, my cohort at that point, we were trying to figure out how do we get back in touch with what the essence of the brand was because the focus was so much on growth and we were launching bagels and we were redesigning stores that it was hard for those of us who were removed from the family and who hadn't been there uh, at the founding to focus ourselves in the right direction, so literally, people were just asking and going and meeting with Bill and talking to him uh, about what was in his mind and 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 what the brand meant to him.
0: Well, that uh, segues nicely into my next thought, which is around meaningfulness. You use the word quite a lot in your book. It's something that I've liked to write about a lot, and I've been recently questioning myself, Evelyn. The question is, do brands have to be meaningful to succeed
1: um, I th- We know people use that word in a lot of different ways. The short answer is I do think they have to be meaningful. They have to be doing something that contributes to the world it May not be an earth-shattering. We're going to clean up the world like Patagonia, you know, and and we're going to improve the earth or save the earth. Um, but they need to be solving a problem that making somebody's life easier <laughs> on a regular basis, um, and in the process provides livelihood and and some joy for the people along the way. Um, I think if a brand has no meaning or you know, meaning and purpose to me are very close, even though they're not exactly the same thing. And so if a brand has no meaning, I'm wondering if the purpose is enough to hold things together so that people can be aligned and achieve something. I, that's That would make me question.
0: I've heard and kind of shuddered at certain pundits who have said, every purpose is a good purpose. Like, that's just so not true. Uh, you know, purpose being profitability? No. Uh, purpose leads to profitability. Profitability is necessary, but it is not your purpose. That is just the consequence of a good purpose. I, I'm, uh, but I also feel like so many people, you and I are chatting and, and probably have a strong resonance and, and complicity around this idea of meaningfulness. But I see so many people running around doing businesses that seem to be all about the the buck, the the quick flip, the scale and scale and sell. And certainly, I live in London, where we have the city and and obviously Wall Street or you know other financiers, Silicon Valley. It feels like meaningfulness. Of course, there are plenty who do it, but I also feel like maybe. I'm sometimes just talking in a little glass bubble and other people don't give a rat's ass.
1: Well, you know, then it makes me wonder how much joy they're getting out of their life and how it gets them up in the morning and how they get everyone aligned to go in the same direction you contribute to something in a an efficient and productive way that that achieves something. You know, I, so I've had a lifestyle business mentor, and um, and even as a business of one, I found it not only necessary to figure out what my why is, but also to have. Um, what my my purpose is in business so that when i was looking at new services to offer or considering things that were maybe a little bit out of my wheelhouse i needed a way to decide yeah i'm going to do this or no this doesn't make sense to me um so, uh, for example, so my why is to help people discover the aha moment so that they gain a new perspective and can move forward. Um, and then my business purpose is, is that I help business owners make confident marketing decisions to that point a while back where people were hating it so much and not understanding it. I want to get them to the point where they can say, this is going to be a good investment of my time and my effort. Um, so those things have guided me and I'm only one person. If I had an entire team and I didn't have a way of saying to them, here's where we're headed, this is the destination, you know, and we may not get all the way there ever, but this is the, de- you know, this is where we're traveling to and how we're going to help the people that we serve along the way.
0: I like to talk about it as your north. It's obviously not a destination, it's a direction. So if I if I cross back in what I said or we talked about at the very beginning of the identity crisis, more global, the existential identity crisis that we have at a at a global, certainly more multiple levels, you've also got, depending on the survey, sixty to seventy percent of employees who say they're not engaged at work. In the United States, in particular, we talk about the Great Resignation. It feels like. Really, this is actually the most important thing that companies and brands, all sizes, lifestyle or not, need to be doing because at the end of the day, the burnout that I see certainly in my peers age group working hellishly, getting the big dollars certainly, but not feeling fulfilled and therefore going after, I feel almost the wrong sense of meaning, ends up with the poor results including on health
2: Mm.
1: yeah that's definitely true you know if you're repeatedly pushing yourself to do something that isn't intuitively joyful helpful you know creating some meaning for you um you know it makes me think of daniel pink's book drive the sure. the real the power behind motivation where he talks about the three things that motivate people purpose mastery and autonomy right so during the pandemic where all of a sudden so many people had to work remotely that gave autonomy to a lot of people who didn't have it before And to me, this is one of those inflection points I was talking about those forks in the road where all of a sudden a lot of people are saying, wow, I can get as much or more done at home And still spend more time with my family or, you know, I, I, the the commute is killing me and I didn't even realize it until I stopped doing it. Um, So there's this big question mark that people had over their heads. If I can get this done with much much more autonomy, I don't really want to be in an environment where I need to put in FaceTime just so someone could see me at my desk or be in endless, endless meetings. I know you talk about that in your book. I mean, I got to tell you that meeting itis that you cited is one of the reasons I left corporate America. I couldn't stand the day long meetings and then the expectation that somehow you would still get your work done around that. You know, I, my, my patience was waning when I was at Duncan. And then when I went back into the work world after I had a child, um, I didn't even last a year because I thought, you know, I'm in all these meetings, I'm not getting any work done, I could be with my child, I could be doing something for my family that would be a lot more meaningful for me. And so that was the end of corporate America for me. But a lot of people are having these thoughts now, having been home because of the pandemic and seeing an alternative mode that worked for them.
0: I have written numerous times about how the people around me who have latched onto this idea of purpose in a profound way, have typically had a life, a massive life-changing experience. And, and what I usually categorize as massive is near death, uh, seeing maybe one of their most important people die, uh, suffering some traumatic, and what I mean traumatic, not just I bumped my finger, type of of illness or or accident and 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 then of course it's not at all in the traumatic area but definitely life-changing is having a baby and I think being sexist for a second it's definitely different for a woman than it is a man in that experience and and can make you focus on what's important in life and until you've had that experience, it seems that you're doomed to stay in adolescence somehow, as a brand.
1: Well, there there's, there needs to be something. I mean, not every brand that comes out of adolescence mentor, um, you know, needs to have this life or death moment. I I don't. Not all of them do. There there are savvy brands out there, and particularly savvy business owners who realized they need to make a shift. So let me give you an example that I think um, people would recognize as much in Europe as they would here, and that is Spotify. Um, So Spotify, when they started, I think they were starting with the technology in 2006 and launched in 2008, but I have to check my numbers. So Daniel Ek, when he started Spotify, really passionately wanted to give people a legal way to listen to music. And and I will preface this by saying, not everybody's a fan of them, because the amount that the musicians actually get from them is, is, is minuscule. Okay, so I'm going to acknowledge that. But his passion was, let's, you know, I saw what happened to Napster, let's give them a way to listen to music legally. And then as Spotify grew, and, you know, Google tried to get into the game, and Amazon Music tried to get into the game, and Apple tried to get into the game, and all these other people in terms of streaming, they had to find a way to, um Assert themselves to still be the leader in this area. And one thing that Daniel Eck recognized is listening, you know, a purpose of having, being able to, uh, enabling people to listen to music legally is no longer a unique purpose, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for I'm not going to unify everybody for that because they could go to other places to do that. So we need a new purpose. And in looking at their business, he realized one of the things they could do was support artists better, not just from. amount that they get from the song so they started serving artists in addition to the listeners and helping them and saying you know we have all this data let us show you uh if you're going to have a concert you have a lot of listeners in x place and you have a lot of you you know there's a lot of activity or desire for you so you know when you cite your concerts here are places you could cite them successfully and fill your stadiums um just as one example um and then sharing the data about who their listeners were and and uh so um they reformulated their purpose that way and they needed to do that. And that was an adolescent moment for them, but they didn't, um, they had competitors, but they didn't have a life or death moment.
0: It's interesting. You're right. In the end of the day, there's the commercial adolescent and then there's the individual's adolescence. And I And I think oftentimes about the individuals who are running the companies and their desire to design a deeper purpose and to lean into that. And uh, funnily about Spotify, um, it reminds me of the Uber story. They they tended to think about the customer experience and they forgot about the employee or the other stakeholder experiences, including the drivers.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Spotify has, you know, to my knowledge done a somewhat better job of that, they call their employees band members and they went through an entire exercise to sort of reassert and and, and include everyone in the formulation of their values which had been laid out from day one from Daniel Eck. and the values didn't change that much, but everybody had a chance to contribute and buy in um, so that they felt line. Uh The Uber situation, God that's just it, it's just scary. And, uber you know, ugly. It, uh, it is uber ugly. But you know the thing is, with, when they talk about their purpose, I have to. Th- I don't see it, mentor. I, okay. I don't see their purpose. I see what they're doing is providing a service that made getting a ride easier. You know it's they're they're very app driven they will emphasize especially when they're in front of authorities talking about employees or not employees that they are a tech company they are an app company but other than enriching a few people at the top and getting a lot of people to use their cars um, as their fleet i I don't see their purpose
0: Mm. it was funny i i just recently received an email from spotify and uh, I, 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 as a musician myself, and I've been to about 800 or 900 concerts, I'm heavily invested in listening to and hopefully paying uh, musicians for their talent. Uh, the, it was an interesting invitation from Spotify to get a preview and a pre-sale discount for pri- a ticket to see on live streaming one of my favorite bands, The War on on Drugs. And I thought that was a pretty cool deal for me. I'm hoping it's good for The War on Drugs. You come from my mom's hometown in in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I wanna end uh, talking about one more topic, uh, which I found distinctly interesting, Evelyn. And this was about brand attributes, this notion of attributes. And I wanna lay it down um, by talking about how you describe different comedians and and how they have these different attributes and I thought that was really enlightening for me because I've never really explored it except to say I think most comedians are usually at the expense of somebody The 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 um follow-on thought and you can just sort of ramble on whichever side you want of this but is that I think universities suffer tremendously uh by from, they they all look the same from us from a at some level, that's to say their words all look the same. We are gonna take care of your kids. We want them to explore this and that, safe space, this and that. Uh, of course, founded in a year, that's different, okay. Located in a different place, rural city, okay, those are differences. But for the main, the from a, a teacher standpoint, it, and from a student experience, it's, I, I feel like they don't do a good job of establishing their points of difference, their branding and their attributes.
1: Uh, So as someone who has been the college counselor for both of my kids, I can definitely agree with that. Um, Some of the smaller schools do a better job than the larger schools um, because they're crafting, they've gotten a bit clued in. I remember sitting at uh, an information meeting at Skidmore, and they they talked about grades, they talked about other things, and then the assistant director of admissions said, we are looking for people who are kind we are looking for kindness because they have a small community and they're looking to craft a culture. So it is seeping in there. um, But it, it's, it is hard for them to differentiate. They have, and, and uh, earlier on, I had a number of private school clients and I I can't even emphasize how much of the FOMO there was in terms of not wanting to differentiate yourself and listing, you know, we serve the whole child, we give individualized attention, everybody's saying the same things. And so there was no differentiation at all. And that, you know, that kills your brand. That really kills your brand. And so I had to point out and hold the mirror to them and say, here's what makes you different. And here are the three things you should emphasize and don't worry about the rest because people assume if you've got a decent reputation as a private school, you're doing all that. You have chances to tell them that, but, you know, lead with what makes you different so that you're attracting the people who would be happy at your school and who you would best serve and letting the other people um, choose another place. and. That last part is just so hard for them. You know, I've had directors of admissions say to me, why did we lose that candidate? Could you interview them? They belonged here. And I'm like, whoa, okay. (laughs) Remember that brand is in the mind of the consumer. Clearly they didn't feel they belong there and it's not for you to tell them, you know? Um, That's really hard. So you bring up an excellent point about that. the thing I would say to you, and one of the things that clinched it for my son, my son went to Lafayette College. He graduated in May 2020, uh, unfortunately from his bedroom because pandemic. But um, it, it ended up being his first choice school, at, but he didn't decide right away. One of the things that impressed him though, was when he got his acceptance letter, which took a while. They sent them out in batches. Um, they cited in his acceptance letter, some of the reasons they really thought he would be good for the community with specific references to his essays and things that he had done and things highlighted what they liked. And so even though maybe from other schools, it took a couple more days for him to actually receive the letter. And it was um, a, a physical letter they sent, not just an email. He was just completely enamored. He felt so seen. And I think that's another way that universities can differentiate places. Saying, you know, here's what we see in you that we think would contribute well here.
0: That's brilliant. I was just exchanging with uh, my friend Jay Bear. Perhaps you know, um, of adorable, huggable bear. Um, we were talking about the the need for marketing technology, the automation. It's obviously a part of being scalable and the issue though is humanity which is how we actually get emotion trust with people is messy and and in messy handwritten notes like you know especially with ink it can get especially if you're left-handed it's messy and yet having a a letter handwritten two days later is probably a lot more memorable and a powerful of course the issue for a Lafayette or whomever is to link that in. So it's sort of coherent with a bigger vision that the, the professors have bought into it, not some tenured, well, I'm just gonna sit here and ride out my time. Uh, not just because it's the big title, this famous school, not because it was since 1849 or whatever when it was founded, but that there's some sort of stronger brand message around that. And And I wonder to what extent comedians are able to sculpt that if they because they're usually just individuals. But I, I did enjoy and I incite people who are listening to go get your book to hear about these how Evelyn carves down the the comedians uh, and and uh, describes what are great brand attributes. So Evelyn, in your own words, or at least uh, how would you like <laughs> not your own words? How would you like people to get in touch with you, get your book, find out what you're up to, subscribe to your newsletter, these type of things?
1: Uh, Well, they can find me at um, my website, which is eSTAR Associates. STAR has two R's like Ringo. Um, They can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter. Um, and Twitter, I'm Evelyn at Evelyn J Star, and um, they can find my book Teenage Race Brand: How Your Brand Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling on uh, Amazon or Bookshop.org or pretty much anywhere you would find um, a book. And uh, it's also available in ebook and uh, and now in large print for anybody who has visual uh, challenges.
0: Lovely, Evelyn. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Been a pleasure chatting with growing up and uh, our identity crisis and uh, a teenage waste brand
1: thanks so much Minter I've enjoyed it
0: thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast if you like the show or would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter Dialogue you can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service and as ever rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintadol.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: I'm a convinced man, building an urge. I'm a convinced man, to live and die subversive. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competition's in me. A convinced. I'm a convinced man I'm ready for arrest. I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman